to the Lowenstein Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein Sandler. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen. Welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer. I'm your host, Linda Bennett, Chair of the Insurance Recovery Practice here at Lowenstein. And I'm very pleased to have my co-host, Michael Lichtenstein, back in the saddle with me. Good to see you again, Michael. Good to see you, Lynn. All right. So in today's episode, this is part four of our mediation series. In prior episodes, we've addressed how policyholders should go about preparing for the mediation. And then we had a really great discussion in episodes two and three, where we had a mediator and an insurance company representative giving their perspectives on how to conduct a successful mediation. In today's episode, Michael, you and I are going to address how to actually seal the deal after the mediation. You and I have both experienced where we thought we had a deal leaving the mediation that day, and then we end up in a months-long battle of trying to get a settlement agreement signed and the amounts agreed to paid. Michael, so let's start with when do we start bringing up some of the terms beyond the dollars that are going to be paid on a disputed claim? We're going to get into some of the details of what those key terms are, but let me just start at the high level. When do we start raising things beyond just how much the insurance company is going to pay for the claim? So Lynn, I raise some very basic terms at the very outset of a mediation or any settlement agreement, because I think they affect the dollar value that our clients are willing to settle for. So for example, I raise issues of scope of release so that we understand what it is we're releasing. In a litigation, it sometimes can be easy because you're, you're releasing that one claim and all of the claims that were brought in that case. But in some other situations like environmental claims, for example, a carrier may want to settle more than one particular site and they may want you to give up any known claims at other sites. They may want you to give up unknown claims at other sites, and they may want to buy the policy back entirely, where they're essentially saying, we'll pay you some money today, and then it's as if the policy never existed and you can never make claims against that policy in the future. So I think that's a very important term, and you need to have an understanding with the carrier so that you know, when you're talking about dollars, you know what you're actually getting and what you're actually giving. Indemnification is another term, the carrier is going to want to know that we're going to indemnify them against additional claims in the future. And that could be claims against by other insurance companies or other parties that have some liability that's related to this. And that can be a big fight because carriers oftentimes want unlimited indemnities. We generally don't want to give them at all, but if we give them, we don't want to give an indemnity that is worth more than the money we're getting to settle the claim. We don't want to become their insurance company, essentially. So that's another one. Subrogation is one I normally raise up front. If you have multiple carriers on a particular claim and I'm settling with one, I want to make sure that that carrier isn't thinking they're going to pay me a million dollars and then lay off $500,000 on the other carriers. Because of course, I'm having the same conversation with those carriers to settle and they're also going to want indemnities. So I can't be in a situation where I get money from them and then they're all just trying to reallocate those dollars on my dime. So I don't need to go through the entire agreement with them, but there are some basic terms I want them to understand before I put a dollar on the table. Yeah, I think it's a tough call. And I love debating issues with you, Michael. I think it's a tough call because you can get over your skis. You know, 
why get into the devil of the detail of all of those issues that you've just raised if we're not going to arrive at an agreeable price at the mediation or as a result of the mediation process? You know, so I take a little bit of a different tact. And we both know it depends on the particular dynamic of a claim. Sometimes it may make all the sense in the world if you're pretty sure that you're going to get to a deal, as you just laid out, address all of those issues on the front end. In other instances, and frankly, in many instances of the matters that I handle, I don't include that as part of the demand. I don't want the carrier to have multiple cards to play with right at the outset of negotiating the price. And so I will just keep the discussion with the carrier limited to the price. But you raise very important issues that the client needs to be prepared for long before they get to the mediation of just what are the the different issues that are going to be raised? What are the dollar values and risk tolerances for the company to address all of these other non-monetary, seemingly non-monetary elements that are going to go into that settlement agreement? So I agree, it's important to get your client understanding on all of those things, but I think it's a difference in style. I like to hold that back until I know I'm actually going to have a deal with the carrier on the money. So let's start diving into the settlement agreement itself. And I came up with a list that really is just a list of war stories for me. Things, Some things you would think would be so basic and simple become a war of the ages after you've left the mediation session. So payment term, what is typical in a settlement agreement with a carrier? And, and again, that's another one. Should we make clear right up front what we want before we get to the number? Or is that something we can deal with in the settlement agreement? That's one of the terms that I'm happy to deal with later. <laughs> Although, and I don't know if we want to talk about it now or, or even on the podcast, but there's another issue about, well, what do you want to have in writing and agree to before you leave the mediation and start the process of drafting, right? right. I like to have term sheets that have some pretty detailed information on more than just those two or three issues I raised before, you know, things I want them to know about when I first make a demand or an offer. I think you want some of the issues I think we're going to talk about here on a term sheet that I like to have signed (laughs) by the parties. It obviously is not binding until you have a fully negotiated agreement, but I think it puts some bite into the agreement that you have. But a lot of people resist that. A lot of people are so exhausted by 11 o'clock at night when the mediation's over. Nobody wants to start drafting. Yeah, you make a great point. And that's something, you know, we all know that mediations include a lot of downtime. If you're starting to get the vibe that a settlement's going to happen, we've started drafting those term sheets to have them ready so that we don't deal with the fatigue excuse at 11 o'clock. And I'll just observe that many more mediators that I deal with now are requiring that. And, and the reason for it is they've seen the same movie that you and I have, that you think you have a deal and then it's a six-month negotiation of the settlement agreement. So mediators are getting wise to that too and are really pressing the issue of having that term sheet. The carriers want to delay as long as possible. <laughs> and our clients, the policyholders, typically want their money as soon as possible. And, and I, you know, I've seen most carriers will start with 90 to 120 days, which I find just preposterous, especially when there's been a process going on for some time and the carrier is fully aware of, of the types of dollars we're talking about. We normally come back with anything from 10 to 30 days. And I would say we generally land, depending on the claim, at 30 to 45 days of payment. If you're just talking about lump sum, 
reimbursements. This can get more complicated if you're putting coverage in place and, and you're going to negotiate a procedure for submitting defense costs and having objections. And But in a basic case, that's where I think we typically land is somewhere between 30 and 45 days for payment. Yep. And watch for them to slip in the word business in front of days. All right. So let's get into the definition of the entities that are going to be covered because in many instances, we've filed the lawsuit and it's in the name of the policyholder, the entity that actually got issued the policy. But when we get into the settlement agreement, we tend to see tremendous expansion of the defined terms in the settlement agreement. So just touch on, Michael, why that matters. I just think you have to be very careful about whose rights you're giving away and whose rights you're trying to preserve. And again, it depends on the type of policy, the type of claim. But you see a lot of language when they're defining who the parties are to the agreement. Successors, assigns, parents, subsidiaries, predecessors. The language is so broad to almost be nonsensical because there are going to be parties in that definition that you don't actually have the power to commit or waive or anything, really. So I try to boil it down to, okay, who is this claim against? Who really has the coverage? And what am I prepared to give up to settle the claim? I think downstream is normally easier to give up as long as you understand what that means. Because all of your subsidiaries, depending on the policy and how broadly the named insured is defined, they may have independent rights, right, in a, in a, in a big coverage program. And yeah, I don't know that you want to be or even can necessarily waive a large wholly owned subsidiary's rights to coverage under your policy. So I just think it's something you have to think through carefully because the carrier's default will be everyone in the world who has any conceivable connection to you in waiving future rights. And I think you have to just be very careful about that. Right. And, and now we're going to get into the, the next two topics are really the main events. And I'll just note here the definition of entities becomes absolutely crucially important because it directly intersects with the scope of release that's going to be given and the parties that you're going to be providing indemnification to, like for the carrier too. So when you've got an AIG and they've got lots and lots of different insurance companies under their umbrella, when you've broadly defined AIG in your settlement agreement, you may have unwittingly greatly expanded the indemnification that you're providing. But let's talk scope of release, Michael. So that's obviously, other than the dollar amount being paid, I would say it's the singularly most important term in your settlement agreement. So what are the issues around scope of release? So when you talk about claims, the carrier, again, depends on the type of issue you're bringing. What is your claim against the carrier? But you know, if you're in a, in a lawsuit, there's an issue of the claims that were brought and identified versus the claims that could have been brought. The carriers, again, will say, well, we don't want to just limit it because the plaintiff pled this in a certain way. We're going to want to define the claim that we're resolving in a much broader way. And I think you just have to be careful to make sure there aren't independent claims that in theory could have been brought in the case that weren't that would still survive your resolution of whatever that lawsuit was. So I think you have to be careful about that. If you're talking about a claim, let's say like an environmental claim, the carriers may not want to settle your one cleanup claim at one site in one particular location. They're going to say, hey, look, you know, you haven't had a claim like this in 25 years. We want to make sure that all of your either known or possibly unknown environmental claims are going to be subsumed by the settlement. 
the broader that release, the closer you're getting to like a policy buyback, where they're saying, look, the only claims you could conceivably have under your GL policies from 1969 to 1975 are these old long-term claims. And you haven't had one other than this. This is a one-off. The only value to us as a carrier is to pay one price and make those policies go away. That's pretty common, at least in my practice. And so you have to think that through carefully with the client to sort of understand whether they're comfortable, whether they think there's a risk that there's another ticking time bomb nobody knows about, right? That's sort of a a bit of a Murphy's Law question. On the issue of what releases we're given, got to be super careful about unknown policies, for example, because... Carriers have been connected, torn apart, consolidated. You know, you have to have a really good understanding, especially of a historic coverage profile, before you say all of the AIG-related companies get releases. Because I don't know who was associated with a particular carrier in 1974 versus today. And so you really have to know before you agree to a release on that language. I prefer to actually spell them out and actually say, these are the five carriers who are getting releases for known or unknown or policy buybacks for known policies or your unknown policies so that you can have a discussion with your client and make an informed decision. And Michael, your practice is mainly focused on these long tail claims, CGL policies, but this scope of release issue comes up with equal importance in the DNO context, employment context. When you're negotiating with a carrier and you've settled a particular claim You need to make sure that, you know, I'll take an employment example. You need to make sure that the person who has been accused of misconduct, for example, doesn't have other potential plaintiffs lurking in the background at that company. Because when you settle that one-off claim, the scope of release is going to be awfully broad. And if two or three more plaintiffs come out of the woodwork a couple of years later, that carrier may try to take that very broad release and say, you're out. We're not paying these subsequent claims because they arise out of the same pattern and practice of conduct for the claim that you just released. Similarly, in the DNO context, you know, we see these publicly traded companies that have multiple securities litigations asserted against them. And we've talked in past podcast episodes about the concept of related claims. But think about that when you are settling this claim today and making sure that it's really confined to the facts and the policies that are before you today. Super right. the important. The default has always got to be, we want to go as small as possible, as narrow as possible. The carrier will want to go as broad. And the right answer may be somewhere in between, but it's something any practitioner or client has to be focused on, like laser focused. Yep. All right. Moving on to indemnification. You mentioned this at the top. I would say this is the second most important seemingly non-monetary term. This is where we are agreeing to become the insurance company's insurance company is how I always describe it to clients. And what it means is after the carrier has paid you, if another carrier comes after them, if one of your subsidiaries comes after them, if there are any states where a direct action can be brought by the plaintiff against the insurance company, you are contractually agreeing to indemnify them. And I want to pause there just so our listeners understand that, because when you enter into a settlement and you're giving that contractual indemnification, you are giving the insurance company something more than they could ever get in court. And I always tell clients that because that is what I use as the basis to start to narrow down 
the unbelievably broad request that you're going to get from the carrier. So with that, Michael, let's talk about some of the ways that you can narrow and, and put a fence around that contractual risk you're taking on. Right. And I'll say it because I, I agree with you that my opening position is typically I'm not indemnified. So you can forget about it. And I make them push hard to get an indemnification in the first instance. And then I feel like, okay, well, I already made one concession. So it sets me up, I think, for an easier time in limiting or narrowing the scope of the indemnity. So how, how, how do you do that? You can cap it in terms of monetary value. You know, a very common one is what you're being paid, but I don't start there. You know, you start with a percentage perhaps of what you're being paid and say, look, I'm not, I'm not agreeing to give it all back. That just doesn't make any sense. You can agree to time limits and say, look, I'm not going to get a claim from you 20 years from now, right? There's got to be a limitation here. And I would say one year is my starting point, three years, probably my outside, you know, to say that. Anybody who's coming out of the woodwork on this type of a claim is going to come out in the near term. And I'm just, how do I tell my management that someone is going to have to watch this potential liability and carry it, you know, as a contingent liability that we might have to a carrier? And carriers should understand that. They may not care, but it's it's absolutely a, a legitimate negotiating point. You've got this other issue of, well, what happens if they make the claim? Okay, well, who defends it? Who controls the resolution, right? It's, it, you know, everything is being flipped here. <laughs> we're, right. we're, we're in the position of the insurance company and we may have an opportunity to resolve that claim at a dollar figure that makes sense to us, but the carrier now may not want to agree to that. They may want to have you fight that because they, they don't want to set a precedent where they actually have that exposure. You're exactly right. And I love flipping the script on the carriers. I take some of their arguments and their provisions and their approaches and put it right back on them and say, we learned from the best. We learned from you how to do this narrow and not provide much coverage at all. There's a lot built into it, but I would say, you know, typically I end up with a, a, an indemnity provision where I'm paying no more than full, but oftentimes a percentage of it. I typically have to, this ties for me a little bit with subrogation. I typically extract a promise that they won't try and subrogate, but I promise to extract the same concession from other carriers with whom I'm settling. If I don't get it from that carrier and that carrier makes a claim against this carrier that I'm talking to, then no segregation goes away for that, right? So I, I try to give them some comfort because that is one area where they're always worried that they're going to get a claim is that if they know there are multiple carriers and they don't have an agreement between at the carrier level on how to allocate the claim. So they always seem to be concerned about that. Term limits, I think, Three years is pretty much where I land, but that can be a hard one. A lot of carriers fight like hell because they don't want to be the lawyer, the outside counsel who agreed to a three-year and that a major claim comes in in three and a half years and they have to defend how how they negotiated to three. Defense is normally okay with control. They typically have the right to participate. If they want to hire their own lawyers for that, it's on their dime. It's, It's really the flip of the language that we normally put in going the other way. We get to choose the lawyers, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, and I would say that the real risk exposure for our clients in providing that indemnification, you know, I've been doing this 28 years and I can count on one hand the number of indemnification claims I've ever seen come through a settlement agreement with a carrier. The real risk are for those larger companies that have complicated corporate histories and 
a subsidiary that got spun off years ago comes out of the woodwork because now they, too, have an asbestos liability or something like that. And then the other real risk factor is if you've got claims that are in a direct action state, you know, the plaintiff does have the ability to go right to the carrier. It happens in product liability, too, right, where you spin off a product and the product now is, is being sold by someone else. And then a claim comes in at a time period that either can overlap where some of it was before, some of it was after. And, and now that party is making the claim that they have rights against your policies, right? So you may settle your liability with your carriers and now they suddenly come in and bring a claim. And the carrier says, you defend it, you figure it out. Well, so we're just about out of time. Michael, you've given some really excellent food for thought on how to seal this deal, maybe get ahead of it a little bit on the front end by raising some of these terms before we shake hands and leave the mediation. And certainly pay attention to the words and be careful in actually papering that settlement up. One other Uh, thing I want to point out, we should be in control of the drafting. You know, some folks might sound easier or better to your client to let the carrier do a first draft. I'd rather draft and see their edits than the other way around. That's just my my practice. You know, reasonable minds could differ on that, but I would much rather say, hey, give me a week. I'll give you what I think are the rational settlement terms and let them try to to edit it rather than trying to figure out where all the ticking bombs are in their draft. You're right. I mean, that that's a great tip. And also that way, the first draft of the settlement agreement gets turned in a week. If you give it to the carriers, you may not see a first draft for 30 days. 90 to 100 days. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, so this series is now concluded. We've taken you through the life cycle of preparing for your mediation, participating in the mediation, and getting your settlement document all signed up and the money paid. As we've made clear throughout this discussion, no two claims are the same. And certainly it's important to have experienced coverage counsel handling these cases for you at mediation. And Michael and I are armed and ready with a team behind us to do that. All right. Great. Thanks, Lynn. See you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast. Or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Lowenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.